0: No, I'm just kidding. I am really excited to be here this morning, especially given what we are going to be talking about this morning. Um, this is a topic that's dear to my heart, and the reason it's dear to my heart, as many of you who've had any time with me will know, I'm a Bible guy. I love the Scriptures. I love hanging out in them. I love talking to people about them. And, uh, and this morning's message is specifically, is the Bible Reliable. Can we trust it? Can we trust what we have and what for a good majority of us our faith is actually based on? Uh, there's some key passages I want us to be walking through. Very specifically though. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Uh, in the beginning of your Bible, there is a table of contents. People worked really hard to put it there. Don't be ashamed to use it. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And, and I find this next part that I say every Sunday very interesting as it relates to what we're talking about this morning. One of the ways we show respect for God's Word here at Pathways, we like to stand for the reading of His Word. So would you please stand with me? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Here's what it says. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God, that's us, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And you know what? I'm just going to read a little bit further in chapter 4, Chapter four, uh, starting with verse 3. It says, for the time will come, listen to this, when people will not put up with sound doctrine... Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teaching, uh, teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from truth and turn aside to myths. Wow. Sound like nowadays, this day and age we live in? We're going to have a good time this morning. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for this morning. I thank you that you are the good God, that you communicate with us, and very specifically, Lord, as we talk about this topic this morning, and we discuss even just the idea of special revelation, which is what the Scriptures are, I ask, Jesus, that each and every one of us will fall more in love with you because of what you've given to us in your Word. May we be a people who are in your Word. Let's study it, that it's, have your laws written on our hearts so that we may be those who stand firm against myths. In your holy and precious name I pray, amen. You're going to have a seat. So here's, here's a question. How do we know the Bible is true? And this is a question that has dogged uh, both Old Testament uh, Jewish believers and it's also dogged the Christian community. How do we know that the Bible is true? Now, since a Pathway, we do our absolute very best to base every, everything we do, all that we are, on the Scriptures, it's important that we believe that the Scriptures are, in fact, reliable. Does that make sense? It makes good sense to me. So, I'm sure most of you have heard a lot of objections to the reliability of the Bible over the years. Tell me if you've heard of some of these things. The Bible is just an antiquated collection of fables and myths. How many of you have heard that before? Just a collection of fables and myths. How about, it's full of contradictions and mistakes. How many of you get that one? Yeah, it's not. It's okay. I love it because a lot of people that are bringing up those kinds of points uh, don't actually know how to handle the original language, know the context in which it was written, who it was written to, any of these other kinds of things. It's kind of like this. It'd be like me going to a pilot to learn how to bake bread. Makes precious little sense, right? the pilot might know how to eat bread, may even know how to bake it a little bit, but they're not a baker. They haven't studied. They're not a student of baking. Makes precious little sense, right? Now, how many of you want a baker flying your plane? (laughs) Equally true, right? So, Full of contradictions and mistakes. How about this one? Why are some ancient texts included in the Bible while others are excluded from the Bible? You hear that one before, right? Some of you have heard that one before. How about things like the Bible has been proven false by historical records and archaeology? How many of you heard that one? Yeah, that's absolute garbage. As a matter of fact, it's actually been proven more and more true. in In the early twentieth century, it was believed that the Hittites, as a people, did not actually exist that the Bible was wrong in talking about this people group called the Hittites until they found a Hittite village. Oh, well, I guess the Bible was true. (laughs) Right. Maybe all these things you thought were false that have been proven true should point you in the direction that maybe the rest of it is too. Justify. Anyway, how about this one? That the Bible has been changed many times over the years. You hear that one? Yeah, another false claim. More false claims over and over and over again false claims. Now look, here's the deal. I obviously don't have time this morning to go over every single false claim that you're going to find in the Bible. I know some of you might be like, "Ah, can't we get even more academic and teach me words that I've never heard of before?" No, we're not going to do that this morning. Here's what we're going to focus on this morning. I want to approach this from a much more positive perspective. I want to tell you why I believe and why we can have confidence in the reliability of the scripture. And yeah, we're gonna deal with a couple of objections that come along, but the biggest thing that I want you to be able to walk away with, that I wanna be able to walk away with, is, is two things, two things that I'm confident this message will do for every one of us in our lives if we dive into it. It will build our personal confidence in the Bible as the word of God that has been given to us as a guide for every area of life. Did you know that the Bible actually speaks into every area of your life? We've been talking about this. uh, Some of us in the church have been talking about this idea that in our region and even within Christianity, we have a really big emphasis and focus on getting people saved. Accept Jesus, right? What about patterning our lives after Jesus? What if we lived like him? What do you think our lives would look like then? And the only way we do that is to be able to learn more about how he lived and how he interacted with the people he interacted with. And in order to do that, we need to dive in to the Scriptures as a reliable source on the person and work of Jesus Christ. So I'm hoping that you will have more confidence in the Scripture as the Word of God and that it can speak into every area of your life. And secondly, it will be this. I just want to give you some tools to use when you encounter people who object to the truth and the reliability of the Scriptures. That's it. So in your notes you're going to find stuff that is not in this message. There are over, I think, around 16 pages of notes for you to deep dive into the reliability of Scripture. And in the event that you are wondering, yes, there are way more pages that you could probably find. Guys like James Werner Wallace is a fantastic uh, resource to everybody. If you would do a search, if you want to write this down or, or uh, you know, take note of it, cold case Christianity. It was a cold case homicide detective who found himself proving to himself Christianity was true in his attempts to prove it wasn't. It's pretty cool. And he takes cold case homicide principles and he applies them to the resurrection. Amazing. Great stuff. Check it out because he's got phenomenal resources in this realm. So there you go. We got a lot more for you in those notes. So let's start with some Critical questions. Where did the Bible come from? How many of you know where the Bible came from? Okay, we got a couple of hands up. That's good. Uh, Came from God. (laughs) Yeah, didn't see that coming, did you? (laughs) Yeah. Some of you are like sheepishly, I think it came from God. (laughs) Yes, yes, it did. So it came from God by the work of the Holy Spirit to human minds, uh, through men, to humankind. That's the process. From God through the Holy Spirit, to human beings, for humankind. That's how it went down. Now, as Christians, we believe that the Bible is God's letter to humanity. It has 66 books. How many of you knew that? All right, good. For those of you who didn't, now you do. 66 books, 40 different authors, over 1,500 years. It took 1,500 years to write this thing. This is why the Bible is one of the most studied ancient pieces of literature ever. It's because it's a remarkable work. There is no other text of ancient literature out there like it. Every scholar will tell you that. There is nothing else like it. The writers came from all walks of life. There were kings. There were fishermen. And we believe that the Bible is divinely inspired by God, authoritative for all of life without error or omission and is infallible in its original writing. And I say in its original writing, that's a phrase that matters. Here's why. In the 1600s, there was a Bible that was produced, and there was a typo in the printing press. This was entertaining. They forgot to put the word not in the Ten Commandments. Yeah imagine how that read, thou shalt. It has been now dubbed the evil Bible. That's its name. If you were to do a search, the evil Bible, 10 commandments, you're going to find the knots missing. Now, I'm sure like we look back on it and laugh, but in its day, it was a really big deal became known as the evil Bible. So, we say in its original writing because we recognize that in the process of reproduction, in terms of printing presses, there's the possibility of typos. Make sense? Reasonable? All right. 66 books of the Bible are known as what's called the canon of Holy Scripture. The word comes from the Greek word, get this, canon, spelt with a K, which just means the rule or the standard. And Christians have been using this word to describe the Bible, and the book that provides the final rule and authority for faith. Now, there is a proper way to understand how to approach Scripture and an improper way. There's an incorrect view of the relationship between the authority of Scripture and the church in canon. Here's what I mean. The incorrect view would be something like this. The church is the determiner of canon. In other words, the church decides On what the Bible is. That is a false view. The church does not decide on what the Bible is. It has never decided on what the Bible was. The church, in fact, is actually the discoverer of the Bible. They do not determine it. They discover it. It's very different. The church is the mother of the canon. That's an incorrect view. A correct view? The church is the child of the canon. The church is the magistrate of the canon. That's an incorrect view. The correct view would be the minister of the canon. The church is the regulator of the canon. No, the church is actually, in fact, the recognizer of the canon. The church is the judge of the canon? No, the church is the witness to the canon. The church is the master of the canon? No, the church is the servant of the canon. Now, here's why these views matter. It is assumed, more often than not, by people who have difficulties with the Scriptures. It is assumed that the church is the one that determines the canon. This is the framework they come from, that the church made a decision as to what the Bible was and what the Bible wasn't. But in fact, actually, the church discovered what the Bible was and what it wasn't. And those are very different ideological perspectives. In one... If the church is the determiner of the canon, then human error enters the mix significantly. But if you discover the canon, well, then it's not, human error is devoid of that to an extent. So, it's really important that we understand that there is an incorrect view and a biblical view of how the relationship undergo, is done between the church and the canon. And all that to say this, if you want to write something down, this is an important point early Christians did not decide what books went into the Bible. They did not decide what books went into the Bible. Now, that might sound, well, Rob, that doesn't make sense to me. Let me explain it. The early Christians already affirmed that the Hebrew Bible was the Word of God. And much of that was due to Jesus' response to the Old Testament that we'll talk about a little bit later later. But they understood that it was the Word of God, and so the questions they faced was discovering what books needed to be added to the Old Testament canon. You see, they didn't have a concept of Old Testament, New Testament. That came later. They had a concept of the Word of God. And so what revelation are they dealing with that needs to, that they're discovering, that needs to be added to the Word of God that they didn't have before? So the books that were recognized were written by either the apostles or eyewitnesses, and they were widely used in the church. So, early Christians did not develop the canon like in, in a way that uh, an author would solicit manuscripts, or rather, uh, a publisher would solicit manuscripts. It was more like recognizing the bestsellers of established, credible authors. Here's what I mean. There was always a criteria that was determined to dis- how we could discover what was actually from God. Uh, there are four requirements that were used in evangelical understanding of what went into the Bible. The first one was this, apostolic origin, apostolic origin, was the writing a tribute to and based on the preaching and teaching of the first generation apostles or their close companions? In other words, were they there? Were they there? Did they actually walk with Jesus, or the companions that they had walk with them? Were they there? Did they have credible knowledge? apostolic origin. How about this? Universal acceptance was another one, and this was acknowledged by the major Christian communities in the ancient world. uh, Was the writing passed around and that everybody agreed, yes, this is from God, this blesses us, this moves us towards being conformed to the image of Christ, this points us to the Father. And by the end of the fourth century, all of that was agreed upon, 100%. Another one was what's called liturgical use. In Acts chapter 2, it talks about the early church, and it says that they gathered together. And one of the things that they did when they gathered together was that they committed themselves to the apostles' teachings. You remember that? Was it read publicly when early Christian communities gathered for the Lord's Supper in their weekly times together? And then, lastly, the fourth thing was, is there a consistent message? containing the theological outlook or similar or complementary uh, outlooks to other accepted Christian writings. In other words, did they contradict? Was it the same message? Was it the same Jesus that they were talking about? You know, you'll hear a lot about these things called the Gnostic Gospels. You ever hear of the Gnostic Gospels? Some of you may have heard of the Gospel of Thomas. Some of you may have heard the… One of the newest ones was like… Man, what a work of fiction. I love this one. I love reading it because I was like, are you serious? The Gospel of Judas. Anybody read that one? What a messed up writing. Here's how the inconsistently works out. Judas, according to the book of Judas, was on special assignment from Jesus. Jesus. That Jesus took him aside and said, here's the deal, here's what you need to know. For all of human existence, you, from this point forward, you are going to be hated, but don't worry, you're going to be great in the kingdom of heaven. And why? Because you are going to make it possible for me to die for the sins of men, because you are going to be tasked with betraying me. What? (laughs) No! No, because it's inconsistent with the rest of the Gospels. It's inconsistent with how we understand the person of Judas to function in the rest of the Gospels. There are all kinds of things that were written throughout the millennia that are not consistent with the original writings. That's pretty cool. And so there's this robustness to recognizing and discovering what was actually from God. The fundamental factor for recognizing a book's canonicity in terms of the idea of bringing it into the New Testament was divine inspiration. That's the chief thing that recognized it, and the chief test of this was apostolic authority. Did the apostles say it, write it, or affirm it? Apostolic authority has never been detached from the authority of the Lord. Theologian and biblical scholar B.B. Warfield says it like this. He says, the canon of the New Testament was completed, ready, when John wrote Revelation in about 98 A.D. And we must not mistake the historical evidences of slow circulation and authentication of these books as evidence of the slowness of canonization of the books by the authority or the taste of the church itself. In other words, when it was written and when it was discovered are not things, or rather, when it was discovered doesn't qualify whether or not it was Scripture from the point that it was written. Does that make sense? So, let's say it was written in 98 A.D., and by the end of the second century, it was considered canon, it was considered part of the Bible. At, in that second century, that is not what made it part of the Bible. What made it part of the Bible was the inspiration that John was given in 98 AD. Does that make sense? Don't worry, it's in your notes. You can check it out later. All right. So why do Christians believe the Bible is reliable and true, that it's the authoritative word of God? Well, it hinges on three characteristics that we're going to focus on this morning, okay? Okay. The first characteristic would be this, the New Testament documents are historically reliable and credible. That's a bold statement, but they are. The second would be, Jesus' character is shown as trustworthy. And the third would be, Jesus claims the Old and New Testament books were the Word of God. So, let's talk about that first point, that the New Testament documents are historically reliable. Here's what we mean. The New Testament record agrees perfectly with what we've seen in history elsewhere. The names of the emperors and the governors and the places and events do not disagree with other sources that we have, the sources that are not in Scripture. They don't agree. The kings were the same. The emperors were the same. the, The pontiffs were the same. All of it was the same. They were there. The names were there. The New Testament reads as a historically reliable document. Here's I mean. It doesn't read like a fairy tale. For example, the New Testament text often shows its human authors in a bad light, which is consistent with the historical record. It shows it like Paul, for example. This is, one, this is a fantastic example because it also talks about it, uh, it references back to this particular character in 2 Timothy chapter 4. But Paul has a real big meltdown about a guy by the name of John Mark. You guys remember this story? Here's a guy by the name of John Mark, he wants badly to go on this missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas, and part of the way through, John Mark's like, dude, I want to go home. I just want to go home. And Paul is mad. He's just furious. And Paul and Barnabas end up having an argument about this, to the extent that Barnabas leaves with John Mark and that's the last missionary journey that Paul and Barnabas went on together. There is nothing about Paul's character in that story that says, hey, I want to model my life after that. It's historically accurate. It shows the human authors in a bad light. Now, later on, we find out that, that Mark is actually somebody that Paul appreciates. If you continue reading in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy uh, it's pretty amazing that there's this turnaround in that relationship. But that being said, the other thing is this. It contains ev- events like the crucifixion. And you might think that that's a good thing in terms of talking about this cru- crucifixion, but they're actually... It talks about events that are inconvenient for those seeking to project Jesus as the Son of God because it shows a weakness. And the crucifixion is the most humiliating way for a Jewish man to die. And so it's historically accurate in that it's an actual historical account of the world. It contains odd bits of details. There are some strange details in the Bible. Like for example, uh, the state of the grass on a certain day. It talks about the state of the grass in John 6.10. Check it out sometime. Standing there. Talks about the grass being long. Who cares? What value does that place? Hey, you should uh, come to know Jesus because grass is long. <laughs> Said nobody at any point ever. <laughs> so there is this historical account that gives us details that lets us know that the people are human and, and that it isn't this myth and this legend trying to bolster up a character contains weird details, and it also has a feel of consistency with eyewitness accounts. The New Testament has eyewitness events. It describes who were still alive when the scholars know that the documents existed, Uh, but we do not know of anyone who disputed the factual historical events described in the New Testament. Nobody disputed it, including Jesus' death and resurrection. In fact, the disciples who wrote large chunks of the New Testament, guys like Paul and John and Peter, they gave their lives for the message of the Bible, and rarely do men die for a lie. Rarely do men die for a lie. The New Testament, and this is in your notes too, we put a pretty awesome chart in there in terms of comparing the New Testament manuscripts with other ancient texts in its day, the New Testament has far more and earlier manuscripts than any other text. Than any other text. Secondly, Jesus' character is shown to be trustworthy. If Christians can convince someone that the Bible is generally reliable as other historical documents, then the next step is to help them see what the historical testimony says about the person of Jesus. That just lends itself to making sense, doesn't it? If the Scriptures are basically unreliable, well, then there'd be no reason for any significance in the person of Jesus. But the historically reliable Bible teaches a historically real Jesus. It does not teach Jesus, who is merely a good teacher. The Bible does not afford us that conclusion about Jesus. In the gospel accounts, Jesus makes prophecies not only of future events, like the destruction of Jerusalem, But of himself and his own work. Look, Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection. Andy Stanley says it this way I will follow a guy who can predict his own death and resurrection. That's a guy you got to listen to. If he was a true prophet, then his teachings must be taken seriously. Uh, C.S. Lewis, some people here know him as the author of uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. But he also wrote another book called Mere Christianity, and in this book called Mere Christianity, he makes a statement. He says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, yeah? That's a good one. Or he would be the devil of hell. And you must make your choice. Either this was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. It's true. He hasn't. You may be familiar with a menu of apologetic choices for some of you, but um, the explanation has endured for a good reason. Jesus could only have been a liar, a lunatic, or a lord, but I would actually add a fourth one, and that would be legend. And that's the one that's come up as of late. Some people say that the historical Jesus never existed, that he was a legend, but every reputable, and this is important, reputable historian, Christian and non-Christian, agree that he was not a legend, that he was an actual person. So, if he was a liar, then why would he die for his claim? If he was a lunatic, then how do you engage in all of these intelligent debates with clarity and with authority of teaching? But Jesus himself said that he was Lord and God, and I believe that the evidence supports the claim. And so, we establish the historical reliability of the Bible, and then we see that Jesus has trustworthy character. And then from there, we ask this critically important question, and that is, what was Jesus' view of the Bible itself? In the Old Testament, Jesus treated the Old Testament as God's inspired word, infallible, inerrant. Just a couple of examples would be, in some places, Jesus was claiming that the entire Old Testament was trustworthy. For example, in John 10, 34, Jesus notes that the Scripture cannot be broken. And many times you see Jesus end His arguments by quoting from Scripture. And as far as He was concerned, what Scripture said was the end of the matter. That was Jesus. You have heard it said, or have you not heard it said? And He's always referencing back to the Scriptures. As a matter of fact, the great commandment Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know where that's taken from? Leviticus. Jesus quotes Leviticus to talk about how to honor all of the commandments from the prophets. In one case, Jesus even argues from the tense of a verb in Matthew 22. He clearly understood that each and every word was authoritative and not just major themes. And finally, Jesus establishes a pattern in Matthew 19 that's repeated in the rest of the gospel when he interchanges phrases like this, Scripture says with God says. And so he acknowledges the authority and the validity of the Old Testament. That's fascinating. If we believe in Jesus And we ought to treat the Old Testament like He did. As the authoritative Word of God. If you believe in Jesus, we've got to treat the Old Testament the way He did. You ever thought of it that way before? That's a big one. Because a lot of us just like the New Testament. New Testament. Jesus Himself laid the foundation for the New Testament. He taught that His teaching was to be viewed as the authoritative Word of God. In John 7, 16, he says, My teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. It comes from God. In Matthew 24, 35, in Mark 13, 31, and Luke 21, Jesus is recorded as saying, Heaven and earth will pass away. But listen, but my words will not pass away. And the crowds noticed this aspect of Jesus' teaching. The first reaction we see recorded after the Sermon on the Mount is that people were amazed because Jesus taught as one with authority in Matthew 7, 29. Now, Jesus not only gives us a reason to believe the truth of His own words, but also the words of His disciples. He told them during the times of persecution, listen to this, but when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say? For it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Matthew ten nineteen to twenty. So what's he saying? That the words that come out of your mouth are not yours, they're the Lord's, and they're authoritative. Jesus told them in John fourteen twenty six that the Holy Spirit would bring to their minds and remind them of what He has taught them. He told them later that the Spirit would continue to teach them and his own authority, even after he departed. So not only is he going to remind them of what was said, but the Holy Spirit is going to reveal to them what else to say, and what else to teach, John 16, 12 to 13. And then finally, after his resurrection, Jesus declares that his disciples would receive power when the Holy Spirit would come on them, so they would be his witness, Acts 1, 8. The New Testament writers understood this authority that had been given to them. And they do not hesitate to cite it, 1 Corinthians two thirteen, Galatians one six to twelve. And Paul's example, or Paul for example, he writes this in 1 Corinthians fourteen thirty six to thirty eight. Did the word of God originate with you, or are you only people it has reached? If anybody thinks he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. If he ignores it, then he needs to be ignored. What's Paul saying about what he's writing? That it's the authoritative word of God. It is the Lord's command. And if a person refused to accept it, if they ignored it, then they were to be ignored as a teacher. There are even two places in the New Testament where the writers cite other New Testament writings as Scripture. Paul does this as it relates to the Gospel of Luke in 1 Timothy 5.18. Peter does this in the writings of Paul in 2 Peter 3.15-16. They reference each other as Scripture. The church appears to have very early on accepted without question the authority of the writings of the New Testament, leaving other writings in an entirely different category. In fact, with the possible exception of 2 Peter and Jude, the canon, as we have it today, was universally recognized by the church in the early second century. that's at the, a, that's at the end of the, basically around the time of the death of the apostles. It was for another it wasn't for another 200 years that an official definition of the canon was deemed necessary. So here's the point: If Jesus Christ is God, if Jesus Christ is God then as believers in Jesus Christ, we must accept His view of Scripture. We must accept His view of Scripture. And that would lead us to understand the entire Bible as not just being important, but inerrant, infallible Word of God in its original writings. So, tell me to ask you this, how important do you think the Bible is? It's a big deal, isn't it? How many of you want to pour into your Bible now? Raise your hand. If you want to learn more about your Bible, some of you are like, I don't know, I'll listen to this later, maybe be inspired. <laughs> like, if all you do is leave here this morning with a little better understanding of why the Bible is true, but that truth doesn't make a difference in any of our lives, then, then we've just wasted our time together. That's what we did. We just wasted our time together. You got some information, so what? But, if having more confidence in the reliability of God's Word causes you to let the Bible transform your life, then this has been time well spent. Listen. Jesus not only valued, but established Scripture. Doesn't it stand to reason that we would value it as well? That we would dive in that we would see it as something that could potentially change everything for us. So as we close this morning, I'm going to ask all of you to take time this week thinking about the value of the Bible in your lives. And here's how I want you to do it. I got a very practical thing for you. I want you to turn to Psalm 119 in your Bibles or on your Bible apps, Psalm 119. And we're going to do this. If you do not know where the book of Psalms is, help me fill in the blank, in the beginning of your Bible, there is... A table of contents. People worked really hard to put it there. Don't be ashamed to use it. Psalm 119. Now you're going to notice that Psalm 119 is broken into paragraphs. What you may not know is that each paragraph is a successive letter in the Hebrew alphabet. How cool is that? Maybe I'm just geeking out over it. I want you to just pick one of those paragraphs. Anyone. Don't care. Pick one. Because the entire Psalm is about the benefit of God's Word. I can assure you that whichever paragraph you choose, whatever one you pick out, will work for what I'm going to ask you to do. So take a look at it. Choose one, don't care. You can open it up one Psalm 119, close your eyes, stick your finger on it, it's going to be good. Once you picked out that paragraph, I want you to spend time this week, and several times actually throughout the week, going over it and pray and thank God for his word and the benefits of his word that you've just read about in that paragraph. That's it. That's all I want you to do. Spend time this week in that one paragraph from Psalm 119 that you've chosen, thinking about and praying about what the scriptures, the word of God, can be in your life, the benefits of having it. That's it. Spend time with the Lord in that. It's a pretty awesome exercise. I tried it this last week. Love it. I'm excited about it. Uh, But also for you, in the notes that we have on the website, pathwaycc.net, you go to resources, click on messages, and it'll be right here for you already this morning. Those pages upon pages of more and more information for those of you who like to geek out the way I do on more information about why the Bible is trustworthy and dealing with some of the objections that are out there. But let me tell you this. I believe that we're to be conformed to the image of Christ. That means that we are to become like Jesus, that we are to pattern our lives after Jesus. And Jesus loved and established the Scriptures. I believe we need to grow in our love for the Scriptures. Let's pray. Lord God, as the prayer ministry comes forward this morning, I know that there's a lot of us here who need to confess this to you. Lord, I have not been in my Bible the way I know you want me to be. I have not been in my Bible the way I want to be. Jesus, I've come up with all kinds of reasons as to why I'm not. I don't like to read. I don't understand it. I, uh, I just don't know what to do. I don't know where to begin. Lord, would you help us overcome those obstacles? Would you help us to be a people who instead of worrying about our relationship to your word, can we worry about your relationship to your word and pattern our lives after that? That we would value it because you value it. Because you say it's good. Because you say it is what it is. Lord, that we would pattern our lives after the things that we learn in it. If that's you this morning, and you've prayed that, I just ask that, that if you need more prayer towards that, and you just want to talk to somebody, would you come forward, and as the worship team is going to be leading us in closing song, that you would come forward and get prayer from the prayer ministry this morning to be able to talk about that further. But Lord God, I ask that you would bless us this week, that you would help us to be a people who dive into what it means to be just like you in the world around us. Lord, that we would be gracious, loving, that we would be protective, that we would honor the things that you honor, that we would walk away from the things that you hate. Lord, that we would not go into the world to condemn the world, but to be part of saving the world. More than anything else, Lord, And when people encounter us, they will ask, what are you all about? Because you have a peace in your life that I need. In your holy and precious name, Jesus, amen.